Greetings, everybody out there in dreamland. Namaste and shalom. Iron sharpens iron and a friend sharpens a friend. You are listening to the Beyond Top Secret Texan. I am the Beyond Top Secret Texan. Broadcasting to you from the coast with the most, the Gulf Coast, the third coast of Texas. The darkest truths from the darkest web need to be told. And you must listen to the Beyond Top Secret Texan. special program follows the amazing story of Robert Hall and the Gateshead Grey. My involvement with this incredible story started in September 2008 when I was holding a presentation at Caderman Hall about aliens and UFOs. I placed an article in the local free paper to advertise this talk, which included the Rich Planet phone number. One evening, about a week before the presentation, I received a call from a Geordie gentleman. He asked me if I was the one giving the talk. He then said, well, I've seen them. And over the next half hour, proceeded to tell me the most fascinating story about a UFO and alien visitation. Robert Hall was just five years old when the events took place, and he described how a UFO appeared behind an invisible barrier in his street. He and another boy were abducted taken on board the craft and examined by horrible creatures. His uncle Ernie, a coal merchant, lived in the next street and also witnessed one of the creatures. The events he described took place just a few miles away from the iconic Gateshead Angel, 58 years before the Angel was constructed. The year was 1940 and Britain was in the midst of the Second World War. Robert Hall lived in Bensham, an area of Gateshead filled with terraced houses driven by coal fires, a stone's throw away from the banks of the River Tyne. I was stunned by this story and asked Robert if I could conduct a recorded interview over the telephone the following day. He seemed keen to do this. When I phoned him the next day, his attitude had changed and he said that he no longer wanted to talk about it. <coughs> he had been ridiculed all of his life and that this would just create more attention. Unperturbed by this, I read over the notes I had made during the conversation, and I noticed he had mentioned a few names of researchers that he had given his story to in the past. The first was David Boyle, who runs a very interesting UFO and paranormal attraction in Blackpool. I telephoned David, and he told me that he believed the core of Robert's Hall's story to be true. I also contacted Gary Heseltine, who is a detective constable and writes for a UFO magazine. Some time ago, he wrote a detailed account of Robert's story, so I arranged a telephone interview with Gary to find out a bit more about this mysterious case. Yes, I'm uh, a police officer with the British Transport Police, and I've been a serving officer for uh, over 19 years. I'm now into my 20th year, and I've been a detective constable for the last 14 years. Robert Hall rang me up out the blue one night in, uh, I think it would probably be early 2003. 
my first 10 or 15 minutes, I'm thinking, yeah, I've got a nutter on the line here. My, that was my genuine thought. I thought, I've got somebody who's just rambling on. And, uh, but I wouldn't be rude and let him talk. And then it struck me that every time I asked him anything, he came back with what I thought was a lot of information. <coughs> and he was mentioning street names and churches and, and uh, scientists and whatever. I'm thinking, this is one hell of a story. Uh, and, and, this, and, and, he, and the more I asked it, and I'm, I think I must have talked to him for about two hours that first night, uh, the more my opinion changed, that as bizarre as the whole story sounded, uh, he, he appeared to have too much information. And with me working with suspects and witnesses, he appeared to be showing me signs of genuine recall. It didn't sound like a fabricated story, as crazy as it sounded. So I, I remember putting the phone down after the conversation and going through to uh, my then partner and said, I've just spoke to a guy for two hours and it's the most bizarre story I've ever heard in my life. And if it's true, it's the most fantastic UFO story I've ever heard. And uh, that made me want to go meet him. So uh, as soon as I was able, I went to go see him. And, and uh, the man was just, you know, like he was on the phone. And, and, and I said, well, all right, I've come up here. I want you to take me around all these places that you told me. Uh, if, you know, if I think you're lying, and I'll, 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 I'll question you and whatever. And he took me around, and the more questions I asked, just came back with detail upon detail and I, and I couldn't help but feel at the end that as fantastic as it was, there was some kind of truthful element to it. Uh, okay. But it obviously would be very, very hard to prove. Obviously he told me about his Uncle Ernie Ray. I went to go see him, uh, but unfortunately whilst he was there in body, his mind was all over the place and he was suffering with senile dementia. So Literally anything that he said wouldn't have counted for anything because it wouldn't have held water in the sense of that, you know, you could probably get the guy to say anything. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't amount to anything. But I took a photograph of him. Um, and then I spoke on the phone with his sister Rhoda, who was at the time, well, was and is two years older. And where he was five, she was, I think, seven. Might, might have been nine, I might be wrong. But she was certainly a few years older, and she said without being prompted, I can remember that there were scientists at the door for days after this all, all happened, and that uh, uh, I, she was there when this reporter came from the Chronicle and who grabbed uh, Robert when he wouldn't give him his story <laughs> and sort of threatened him. And so, she, you know, it was without prompting, it wasn't leading there. And I thought, well, that's fascinating. Something certainly must have happened. When he said, well, you know, it's from Mulholland, the tables were outside on Saltwell Road from Mulholland Shop to Triscothic Street. That's just too much detail for a little kid to come out with if it hasn't happened. People don't mention so much detail when they're fabricating a lie. And so, you know, I for one think that at the heart of this is a very weird story. That's why, if you read the article again, I actually say, look, I'm putting this out because I'm tied up. You know, I'm looking for people to, to help me on this yeah. and to take it forward and, and you know, the other man. So, uh, you know, I, I just think it's 
a fantastic story. And if we could ever get some kind of proper confirmation of essentially elements of the story in a newspaper, I think it would be a bit like discovering Roswell. Roswell ringing in my head, I now felt compelled to get to the bottom of this story. The events took place in 1940s Benchon, which is just a few miles from where I live, so I was ideally placed to get regular access to libraries and witnesses. However, I needed the cooperation of Robert Hall if I was going to get anywhere, so I decided to invite him and his wife to the alien and UFO presentation at Gateshead Library. I sent him two free tickets in the hope that he would show up. To my delight, he arrived five minutes before the talk, and I shook his hand and he gave me a copy of the article written by Gary Hazeltine. During the alien presentation, he sat near the front, and I was aware of his presence. Several times I could hear him making noises of confirmation towards the facts given in my presentation. After the event, I arranged to telephone him the following day. To my total dismay, he went cold on me again. He explained that he was wary of people who wanted to profit from his story, and this seemed like his final word. A few weeks went by, and I couldn't get the story out of my head, so I decided to put my video camera in the boot of the car and go around and knock on his door. To my amazement, he looked very pleased to see us, and explained that he had suffered a few personal problems, and that he was now happy to do a televised interview. Robert Hall was no ordinary five-year-old boy. Having spoken to him at length on several occasions, both in person and on the phone, I now have a feel for his character. He is certainly a maverick, and as a child was often left to his own devices. He was happy to get on a tram by himself and travel to Newcastle or even as far as Sunnyside, which is five miles away. A very adventurous and curious boy with little interest in going to school. He wasn't afraid to break the rules, but would do anything to help anyone. Robert lived on the end terrace at 29 Headley Street with his mother and father, older sisters Rhoda and Cynthia, and his brother Harry was on the front line. At the side of the house is a back lane, known by locals as the bottom back lane, which runs parallel to the railway line and adjoins all of the adjacent streets. This lane was like a playground for all of the children who lived in these terraces. I started by asking Robert about his early life as a five-year-old boy in Benchon in 1940. I used to bother with school if I could help it. My mother was working on the railways at Clean, and my father was in the coke ovens, working at the trade and estate coke ovens. My brother was in the front line, Harry. He was fighting with the Germans, you know? And there was nobody, I was used to sit in the street. Well, I would put it this way, I was pushed out into their street when I was about four. Right, but I was brilliant. <laughs> you know what I mean? You see, get all over. Oh, no, nah, I'm not in there tonight, football. We used to yodel. You know, you've heard the Aust um, Some people used to yodel, right? 
And the, the, if a friend come along the top of the street, he would yodel, and you would know where they were. You know, you know what I mean? With your throat, we used to yodel. We used to go to the. Mate, you couldn't get in a cinema till you were eight year old. So I used to give somebody um, maybe your money and they would take you in, make a new with their son, you know, taking the pictures. We're watching the whole lot of soldiers marching around the Shovel Road. After about three hours, we got sick of it. It was too many, it kept going on, we were getting colder. Wanted somebody to eat. So we both, we lived in Headley Street, you see, so we both run down to go around the back lane to our houses. You know when you look through a fire and it's wobbly? Well, the, that seemed to be the barrier. All you could see is the railway because we didn't see it till we got through the, this bigger barrier. They were under these horrible creatures. You know, they seemed to be pleased because um, they had put something at each side of the wall and they, if you were too tall, it, it affected you or something. We had seemed to get some kind of, under some kind of barrier and they got a hold of it. Hold of this other lad as well. Yeah, and um, they took we both along. No, the horrible-looking things. I was about eating and eating. The 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 horrible-looking things. Can you describe what they look like? Well, well, there was one. I know you're gonna you're gonna take the mick. One was like Bigfoot. He was very tall, and the others were small, about four foot. And uh, the, the horrible ones. One had like a diver's mask on him. And. Uh, one of the creatures who was very good looking, look, the one of the aliens. And he did, he had a kind of um like a robe on. Did he have what colour hair did he have? Yeah, uh, he was blonde. And what colour eyes? Mm, didn't notice. Was he tall or small? He was tall, but he, he liked me because I was blonde. Mm, cool. right. I wanted to be a wheelie. <laughs> right. But um it was he kind of like human in appearance. Definitely. Yeah, you could you could pass him on the street, you wouldn't even know. But he had long hair, like ye. <laughs> well, a bit longer than yours. And I said, well, you can examine me. And I went in the capsule. You know, that pulled the wall. Yeah, but it moved all of a sudden. It was at the bottom of the street. And they took it from there and they put it into the back yard. You know, the walls had been pulled down, ready for every shelters in the backyard. So it was in there. We walked through. He took me through into there, examined this, took some blood out of the back of my neck. He says, if you lift your head up, you'll be killed instantly. And I was petrified. Oh, now you pain yourself. They examined me. They brought us out, and they were pleased as punch with me. But I was, uh, I was really bad, I tell you, shaking. And I stood beside these other creatures. They were like men. But uh, the tallest one was about four foot, and they went down to about two foot. There was three of them. And these other ones were all horrible-looking creatures. You know, um, and this was on board the craft? You know, outside the craft. Outside the craft. Yeah, and this was in the back lane. Right. But was, you see, with them, about 18 of them, were, they were right along the lane, right around we. We couldn't run that way, couldn't run anywhere. And apart from the boy that you mentioned, was there any other children or any? Yeah, they were trying to... The girls went into hysteria, um, what do you call hysteria? They were trying to get over the fences, to get, to get over the railway to get away. But before that, a big black dog come in, and it was gunning, it was really wild, and it was gunning gun for the kids. And that's this little one, little man, like a little short man, 
And as soon as clear, and I grabbed his the thing out of his belt, and I pointed at the dog, and the dog went docile, just like it was drugged, right? And that's what he had been using on the kids when they got violent or frightened. And they, they were pleased as punch with that with me. The, the big tall one was like, um, I know you're gonna say a daft, but it was like Bigfoot. He got ahead of the other lad. He says, run, 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 run. And I run up the back lane, straight up the street to Mona Holland's paper shop. And uh, but I was going like the clappers and it was hardly moving. But I got up the top of the back lane, anyway, this street. And I said to the soldiers, there's some horrible creatures doing the lane. Oh, he says, it's children having a game, man. I says, look at the marks on my face, man. I says, it isn't. Of course, the soldier officer says, come on, there's a pistol. Go around the corner. Make me still look big. He come around the corner. When he seen what went on, he fired a pistol. <laughs> All hell broke loose on Southwell Road. The men were running all over the place, you know? So the actual craft itself that you saw? It went up behind after that. But what I couldn't figure out for years where all them creatures went. They couldn't get in the small craft. How big was the craft? It was only about, uh, what, 14 feet or 12 to 14 feet, you know? What the shape was it? Well, not, not dead round. It was more of um, egg shape, you know? Did you see it disappear? Well, we did see the top of the street when I was at the top of the street. There must have been hundreds seen it. After the break, Robert Hall explains what happened three days after the UFO had left the street. UFO sighting and abduction, he told his parents about the creatures, but they did not believe him, and he was told to keep quiet about it. This is by no means the end of this incredible story. About three days later, things took an even more bizarre twist. In the morning, Robert was going to the local shop for his father's newspaper. Then I went to this shop, Mona Hollins, to get me father's paper. A grey come after us up the back lane. I run like, I, Gray was on us like a shot. And I was a hell of a good runner. And I, as I screamed, my uncle only smashed its head in with a shovel. And he says, oh, i never seen that like it. And he says, get um, Sergeant Brooks on Southwell Road. He'd be just coming off duty now. So I run around to Southwell Road and Sergeant Brooks come along. I says, he's killed it, he's killed it. He says, kill what? And he went for his truncheon. And had the old-fashioned police mat on and he come around the corner. He said, by God, and he was crossing his own train. He said, I've never seen no like it. They put it on a coal sack and pulled it into the backyard, into the, 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 the coal place is still there to this day. They pulled it into there. He said, you get yourself away home. I said, no, I've been telling you the damn truth. There he is, your proof. Get yourself away home, Robert. I said, no, I'm standing here. Absolutely incredible. Robert's uncle, Ernie Wren, had killed the creature with a coal shovel. This is the precise spot where the alien was hit over the head with the shovel. <coughs> About 20 minutes later, according to Robert, a vehicle took the dead creature's body to a place where it could be hidden until authorities were informed. According to him, 
The hiding place was underneath St. Cuthbert's Church on Bensham Road, about half a mile from the incident. He said there were some steps at the back of the church which led underneath, down which the alien was taken and then stored for three months. They took her to the church on Bensham Road. Then the next year, there was men in white overalls, army, I don't know what they were, and with little like suitcases, and they pulled everybody out of the houses, right along Sotwell Road, two men on one side of the street, two men on the other, and they were going into everybody's whose old grannies were getting pulled out of the house, and they were looking for them in the, in the houses, because it was about three or four days after the UFO went away that that one come after me, so they thought there was maybe more, and they were checking every house, looking for greys or whatever they could get. Professors, getting scientists from Edinburgh, is, uh, investigators from London, and to my house, my father got sick of it. To investigate Robert's claims, I went along to the church which still stands at the top of Ben... When I got there, it was clear that the church is no longer in use. All of the doors and windows were boarded up, and it seemed to be in a state of disrepair. A notice on the side of the building stated that the church had been purchased and was to be converted into a museum. I went round to the back of the church to see if I could find the steps. I'm just standing now at the top of the steps <coughs> on the side of the church where the alien was taken. I'm just going to go down the steps. See, it's not very pleasant down here. The steps are very narrow. Okay. And there is a chamber. It smells not too good either. There's a chamber underneath here somewhere. Hello. chamber which is about say about 12 feet by 8 feet and we're just we're underneath the floor of the church here you can see this it's right beneath the church an ideal place to store a dead alien through my head as I sat in the crypt. Imagine all of the church services which must have taken place during the time the alien was stored underneath. And how to do it at the back of the, the church. That's where the very narrow steps are. Yeah. Can you describe that entrance to the I wouldn't go and do it. <laughs> Not like me. The interview with Robert Hall went on for an hour, and several other interesting details came out. On the morning he was watching the soldiers, sometime before he was captured by the aliens, 
he remembers an extremely bright light zigzagging across the sky, which was also spotted by some Australian soldiers. After it went out of sight, they didn't pay much attention to it. Robert also remembered a woman holding a baby coming out of the craft shortly after he had been let out. Robert was ill for a few days following the abduction. For two days his eyes watered and he suffered headaches. A small triangular shaped mark appeared on his left cheek, which remained until he was about 13. After the events, Robert was intimidated and threatened by officials who he presumed were from the army or the government, who said that he would be killed if he said anything. A high-ranking man from the Air Force interviewed him and asked him to provide an account of what he saw. He remembers the Air Force official was called Marshall. He handed Robert a child's spinning top and asked him if this is what the craft looked like. At some point, Robert was visited by a reporter from the Evening Chronicle, but he would not say anything. The reporter punched him to try and get the information, and this has been corroborated by his sister Rhoda. For years after the events, Robert remembers being followed to school every day by a man. He even claims that his UFO experience is recorded in his school record. There was clearly a lot to investigate. Before I started tracing other witnesses, I decided to email Daryl Sims, one of the world's leading experts on alien abduction. In reply to my email, he attached a drawing of what he described as the usual suspects in a typical abduction case. This drawing was so similar to Robert Hall's descriptions, I asked Daryl if he would do an interview over the phone. Daryl Sims has been investigating the alien abduction phenomena for over 30 years and has studied over 1,000 cases worldwide. Daryl agreed to a telephone interview to try and shed some light on Robert Hall's story. Basically, this gentleman contacted me a few months ago and I've interviewed him. You, you know, you've seen a little bit of um, a little clip of the interview. Um, if I just basically describe how he describes his abductors, and perhaps you can maybe shed a little bit of light um, on, on what I'm saying. He described one of them as being very tall, with long blonde hair. Another one he described as being like Bigfoot. Uh, he described the others as all being horrible-looking creatures ranging from two foot down, sorry, from four foot down to two foot. And one had what looked like an old-fashioned diver's mask on, you know, like the big spherical diver's mask. And he, he claims that it had, um, or may have had liquid in it. Um, I just wondered if you, if, if that, if any of this is common, or if you could shed any light on any of it, just down to your knowledge and experience of abductees. The entities that are, first of all, that are found for your, for your audience's uh, interest, uh, the entities that are often described in these events range from a small little gray type creature with large bug eyes mm -hmm. uh, that are usually almond shaped, sometimes perfectly round, uh, to another creature that's a little bit larger than he is, which is often referred to as the doctor. And then the, uh, there is a, uh, a prey mantis type creature that's uh, about uh, five and a half to six to seven foot tall. Mm -hmm. There's a humanoid creature, which we're gonna mention and speak about here in a moment, and then there's another creature that looks, for all intents and purposes, for, for those of you that are in the movie, mm -hmm. the movie watch movies a lot, in Star Wars, there was a movie called, a, a creature called a Wookiee, uh, and uh, it kind of looks like a giant Bigfoot is what it looks like, and uh, okay. some people describe those creatures as well. The humanoid creature um, that you see on the quote-unquote uh, 
uh, UFO events or abduction uh, scenarios or contact scenarios is a human-like creature uh, in in our uh, estimation. The human-like creatures have uh, are, are not are not the they're not human is the best way to describe them. They uh, they're human-like, and uh, there is uh, some who are of the opinion, and I'm one of them, and Dr. Dr. Jacobs at uh, Temple University and uh, Bud Hopkins and myself are three that think that these uh, human entities are, in fact, nothing but uh, a version of uh, the alien in a uh, in a hybrid hybridized form. Okay. That the purpose uh, his purpose here may be to a comfort uh, a human by. Um, calming him down is an example when the little entities are going to do whatever they're going to do to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes he will come in. The best example I can give of this was the uh, the famous Travis Walton case. My friend Travis uh, mm-hmm. found himself on a craft and uh, was more than mortified when he saw these little creatures coming toward him. Mm-hmm. And he picked up something and he said, I don't know what it was, it kind of looked like a big wrench. And he said, I was going to hit him with it. Stop them from doing coming after me. And he said, at that point, he said instantly, this large human, very well built, very tall, came in, and all the conversations took place there were mental. And uh, these entities, for the, no one knows the real answer to this. I've got some ideas, but basically, they prefer you not to speak on the craft. Mm-hmm. Almost, uh, almost never will you hear speaking. Now you'll hear screaming okay. by the abductee in some cases, but you are not allowed to speak. They don't want you to do that. Okay. And, uh, anyway, the uh, the human seems to be a hybridization. Uh, one at, one might ask the question, well, why in the world would you say something like that? Because what does <laughs> to, to what end? Well, one of the ends is the fact that uh, they may be useful, uh, not just on the craft, but they may be useful down here. Mm-hmm. In other words, if they wanted to. Uh, um, say, cause a reconnaissance down here in uh, among the humans without being detected, it would be far easier to do it in a human form than it would be with a little bug-eyed guy wandering around here. <laughs> yeah. You'd need about a, a 50-pound fly swatter to get this guy, so it's going to be far easier to use a human to a humanoid form to uh, be undetectable for the most part. Unless you really knew what you were looking for, you would not detect this guy. One thing This event took place in 1940. I know the Roswell incident was 47, the Missouri incident in 1941. So, do you have cases from as long ago as that? We have uh, we have cases. My own case, uh, my own abduction case, started when I was three and a half years old in 1952. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, there there weren't any monster movies and or anything like that back then, you know, when my parents would certainly never let me watch something like that as a, as a three-and-a-half-year-old child. Mm-hmm. Um, and my events are conscious. I've never had hypnosis or any memory recovery techniques to, quote-unquote, uh, figure out what happened. I, I know what happened, and I was cognizant, and I saw mm-hmm. the entities there. 
And um, the answer to your question, do we have cases, but you go back further than that, the answer is yes. The, uh, the problem is how many people do you get to talk to that are that have cases back in the uh, late 1800s to um, uh, to 1900s or even earlier? Yeah. Uh, well, generally you don't have you don't get to contact those people because they're either a dead or b um, uh, your information is anecdotal yeah. because they're too old. So my question I always ask my abductees, especially the oldest ones, is have you ever talked to any of your parents, aunts, aunts, uncles, relatives? about anything that may have happened to them. And, and some of them say yes, and, of course, then that puts us way back before the, the 40s. <clears throat> After the break, Daryl Sims explains more, including the pen-like device used by aliens to subdue human beings. I also tracked down the people who lived in the streets where the events took place. a device about the size of a cigarette which when pointed at an animal or a human made them become docile. <coughs> I asked Daryl Sims if he had come across this device in any of his other abduction cases. I certainly do. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an excellent, uh, excellent uh, that he brought this up and that, that you noted it. The, uh, the object there is, uh, it's usually a laser-like device as far as we are concerned. It's, it's uh, what we would expect liken it to. It appears to be a laser-like device that uh, fires a, a small little light beam. Uh, sometimes it's blue, sometimes it's different colors. It doesn't seem to make any difference. Its purpose seems to be to neutralize someone should it be necessary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've had a, an abduction case with a, an engineer, uh, and this is most interesting because the engineer doesn't believe in abductions, UFO flying saucers, period. He doesn't believe in any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But he has, he does believe in what's happened to him, and it's freaking him out. He does. He said, "This can't be happening to me." And I said, "Yeah, I know." I said, uh, "How do you, how does it feel to be weird like the rest of us?" <laughs> he laughed and he said, "But I'm normal. This can't happen to me." I said, right. "No." I said, "I understand your problem here, sir. I really do." So he he had an experience of this kind of instrument. They they couldn't control him. He's very uh, 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 very reactive in, in the most difficult way if you try to physically most people are just scared and don't whatever he just gets up and tries to fight you and yeah. um, four of them were in the room four of these little creatures were in the room and three of them had these little devices like what you described and they had to use all three of them right and those devices almost didn't work he nearly got them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, in fact he hit one of the entities he reports and knocked it down and of course that put him out of commission mm -hmm. but the other three will still were still using their little laser-like immobilization devices, uh, uh, light taser, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. to uh, immobilize them, and it finally worked. Mm -hmm. but, uh, he nearly got all, all four of them. Nice. Um, another thing that he mentioned, and I think you've given an explanation for this, was that he said that they took blood out of the back of his neck, and they said that, that he shouldn't lift his head up, otherwise he would be killed instantly. 
what, what are your thoughts on that? I, I find his statements uh, rather um, uh, interesting, and here's why. Because, uh, first of all, it, it shows subterfuge. You'll die if you move. Well, we hear this a lot. If you if you go into a, uh, any other room than the one we've got you in, you'll die. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> they say weird things like this because they want a complete obedience out of you. Mm -hmm. They want you not to see anything or notice anything. That's hence the reason for you not remembering much of anything. Most people will not remember much unless they uh, something triggers those events, like they see something, a, a memory marker, so to speak, and it triggers a memory and it scares them. They real, realize they're remembering all kinds of stuff they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. The bottom line is that these are, um, the best way to describe this for your audience is these are almost like hypnotic commands given to you, don't move or you'll die. Yeah. Uh, it, it, they'll give all kinds of commands like this in, in hopes that you will obey them. And, of course, we've got abductees, some of them who simply won't. So I look at this and I wonder if, in fact, they took blood from the back of his neck. Usually it's taken from the bicep or the back of the leg or some of more uh, conspicuous place where you yeah. would take uh, where you'd find a vein. There aren't very many large veins in the back of your neck, so to speak, where you would take any any medical person would not be taking blood from the back of your neck. Yes. Now somebody might be doing something with your spine or something like that, but by and large it doesn't make any sense. And you'll find that many of these so-called medical procedures, when looked at through uh, the medical lives, such as our medical team or cardiovascular surgeon and other people, they don't make sense at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, so it seems, again, it's a ruse. Something else is going on. Mm -hmm. so what could possibly be going on that they weren't taking blood from? Because, um, I mean, if uh, your nur a nurse takes blood from your arm or any other place, they don't tell you you're going to die because they, you know, don't move because you'll die or you're, you know, whatever. Yeah. So um, could they be have been putting something in or removing something? Yes. Now, that would make a lot more sense to me. Mm -hmm. now, I don't know if that's what happened, but... That makes more sense because uh, you would want the person to be still while you were installing something or removing something. Mm -hmm. Yes, if that makes any sense. One thing that, the, that uh, Robert Hall claims the aliens um, asked him was that they said that they were looking for relatives of Moses and they, they referred to him as the son of Adam. And another thing they asked him was he said that they asked him why people were fighting, i.e., you know, the, the Second World War. They asked him about that. Could you shed any light on any of those, any of those things? Certainly can. And uh, again, uh, <clears throat> these, my thoughts are based on 38 years of investigations, and I've, I pretty much have heard the whoppers and the real things they seem to be concerned with. Mm -hmm. And as an investigator, I have to separate the two. They're looking for mode for the relations of Moses. Uh, you'd need to be looking at Hasidic Jews of a, uh, you know, and, and so on in the lineage of Abraham. Mm. And uh, trust me, they know where they're at. Mm. And they know, they already know the answers to that. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I could tell you a dozen funny stories about this sort of thing. Mm. The bottom line is that it's highly unlikely they're looking for the relations of Moses. Yeah. Uh, they, they might, but uh, I seriously don't think that. This is all extremely interesting, but does not provide any proof that these events occurred. I talked to Robert's older sister, Rhoda, to ask what she could remember of the events in 1940. She remembered that there was a reporter who came into the house to question Robert, 
and that when the reporter was there, another man came into the house to try and prevent the reporter getting Robert's story, but she didn't know where the other man was from. She said that Robert had told this story all of his life and it had never changed. She also insisted that he is not the type of person who lies or makes up stories. I started tracking down the people who lived in the streets where the events took place. The electoral roll of 1939 was a good place to start, so I was able to get all of the names of the families that lived in each house. I knocked on many doors, and by questioning residents, was able to track down some of the people that lived in the area. Anne Anderson lived on Newton Street in 1940, with her sister Lily and brother John. They had been evacuated at the time, so would not have witnessed the events. We tracked her down, and she was able to give us contact details of several people who were still alive that lived here in 1940. In total, we have spoken to approximately 10 people who lived very near the spot where the UFO craft landed, and none of them remember any of the events. Only one person claimed that something strange or unusual occurred that year. Another person who lived in the area at the time was Ada Woff. Ada Woff's parents ran the local shop, which is right next to the place where the UFO was alleged to have landed. They also owned the coal yard where the alien was dragged. Ada was seven in 1940, and we managed to catch up with her to ask if she could recall anything strange at the time. Well, to tell you the truth, we all played in that, the bottom back lane, that's called. Mm -hmm. And we all played in there because you could dance there. You know, you used to sing along and dance there and play all kinds of games in that back lane. And it was blocked off at the end, like, you you know, there was no cars could get in off that uh, lovely hill road. So there was always children right the way along that railway line, the back lane, right the way along to, sort of, you know, Trafalgar Street and right the way along. So there would, there would be children playing there. I mean, there isn't now. We've been there a few times, and it's pretty much... Well, the children don't play out now. No, no. TV and computers, and that's all it is. You know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it sounds feasible that you hit, would hit it over the head with a shovel, but I can't understand how it was never talked about in my family's house. I'm sure it wasn't. And what about the police officer? that Robert Hall claimed witnessed the creature, Sergeant Brooks. After quite a bit of research, I was able to find that there was indeed a police officer named Brooks who lived in the area in 1940. This 1927 photograph of Gateshead Police Force includes PC 49, William Brooks. I managed to trace his son, Vernon Brooks, and granddaughter, Verna. We arranged an interview find out whether they knew anything about the creature. Explain to me, how old were, were you, um, Vernon, in, in 1940, and where did you live? Oh, no, 1940, well, oh, would that be 13, 14? Well, no, we were about 14, I think. 13, 14? Uh, Some 13, 13, 14. 14. And I was way down in Yorkshire. Right, so you were evacuated yeah. in 1940, you, you weren't here. Okay, and um, what was your grandfather's occupation? Well, he was a police officer, yeah. And um, what was his full name? 
William Archibald Brooks. Archibald, not Archibald, Archibald. There was no I in it. And he was very insistent on that. Right. And what rank was he in 1940? 1940, he would have been an acting sergeant. So people probably would have referred to him as Sergeant Brooks. Sergeant Brooks, yes. Okay. And um, can you remember where, where your house was, where you lived, or where, where your yes, father I lived? Yes, yes. 29 Linden Terrace, okay. and the house had the name above the door, right. Branston House. And that's a stone's throw from Solomon Road, isn't it? Yes. Okay. And can you remember where his beat would have been in 1940? His beat would have been... Again, it was divided into different areas, and his beat would have covered Bencham and the teams. Okay. And it would have included Salton Road. It would include all this area. And had the old-fashioned police mag on, and he come around the corner. He said, by God, and he was crossing his own plane. He says, I've never seen out like it. Well, I'll ask you the question directly, what I'm getting at. Was he ever known to cross himself? You know when people do this, if he, if he was to see I something... Did you ever, ever see him do that? No, he never did that. No. Okay. Right. And um, do you think he's the type of person who might have kept things from you, or is he the sort of person who would tell you everything? What, 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 how would you describe him in terms of letting you know what was going on? He would tell us what was going on, but if he had been sworn to secrecy, or the official secrets that came into being, then it would be finished. Right. He, he wouldn't tell, tell you anything. needed to know. And you've, you've answered this question before off camera. Did he ever speak about seeing any creature of any kind in 1940? No, no. And can you remember anyone else ever, ever speaking of that? Never. Never, okay. Something that Robert mentioned in his interview was that he had telephoned a local late night talk show several years ago, the Alan Robson's Night Owls program, and given his account on air. I decided to telephone the show and ask if it was true that people had in fact confirmed the story. Alan Robson did confirm that people rang in and confirmed things that Robert Hall had said. We wrote to Metro Radio to ask if there was any archive material of the callers who rang in at the time. Unfortunately, these recordings no longer exist. Alan Robson did write to us, however, and in his letter he states, I can confirm that at the time... Numerous callers did remember the incidents in 1940 and reading about them in local newspapers. So there is some evidence in what is said in this letter, but it is not really enough to turn the event into the next Roswell. We needed more evidence, and the trail of finding witnesses seemed to have dried up. So I decided to focus all of the attention on the newspaper records. According to Robert Hall, a reporter from the Evening Chronicle came to his house and actually assaulted him to try to get the story. To this day, I have so far searched every edition of the Journal and Evening Chronicle from January to July 1940 and have not found any article which corroborates Robert's story. From the evidence and witnesses that I have been able to find, I do not consider the story to be fully corroborated. However, I do believe that Robert Hall is telling the truth. Any supporting evidence which comes to light in the coming months and years will be posted on the richplanet.net website. One final point. The reason why Robert Hall contacted Gary Heseltine in the first place was to complain about a report examining the origins of the phrase, Little Green Men.
Robert claims that this phrase originated in his street in 1940 after the events. At the time, he described the creatures to others as little grey men, but he was misheard, and the phrase little green men was born and spread around the world. Do I have another aliens? Or old Nick, I mean the devil's mob, you know what I mean? But I had people from Christian churches, you know, doing the same. I got the children in chapel now and then I'm going this Sunday. <coughs> and the older ones in the 90s say, don't do nothing, don't say nothing to nobody. They knew about it, and they wanted to keep it quiet. Well, I thought the truth should come out. You know what I mean? I, what were they on, but... If you encounter one again today, would you be would you be really scared or would you? No, I wouldn't be frightened. They're more frightened of us than we are of them. That's why they use a thing like a. It's like a. What do you It's like a. Something like that. The pointer at you and you're going docile. It's just like that. It's something like that. The pointer at you and you go docile. Well, that's what I'm got is. Um, you see, if anybody says they believe in little green men, they're not damn green. There wasn't one green mong with a lot of them. It was grey, and it took all these years, it took them mick, saying they were green. They weren't. They were grey with big eyes. Scared the hell out of us.